listening to the Deep Sea Podcast Pressurized, a short, punchy version of our full-length shows. So if you want to get right to the scientific point, this is the place to be. If you really enjoy the topic and you think, actually, you know, I'd like to know more, just match the episode number and you'll be able to find the full-length episode in our feed. And now to get right to the point. So I've still been thinking about the deep sea mining episode and how complicated all that was. And it's just got me wondering about how we've impacted the deep sea, an area that we thought was beyond our reach and sort of immune to us. What are other good examples, Alan, of impact we've had on the deep sea without maybe meaning to? There's, there's probably way more than people would think. I mean, there's a couple of really high profile, really interesting ones. I mean, one of the, the more bizarre ones is a big chunk of plutonium was jettisoned into the Tonga Trench, about around 9,000 metres which was a result of the Apollo 13 mission being aborted when they had to bring the, the lunar module back. It had the radioactive thermoelectric generator still on it. So there's, there's, that's a weird one. The other big one was in the 70s, they dumped per volume the equivalent of 387,000 tonnes, which volume equivalent is about 880 Boeing 747s worth of pharmaceutical waste in the Puerto Rico trench. And that's probably the most ridiculous one I can find. It was only, it only happened for about five years, but it was a huge amount and, and banned it in 1978. And as soon as they banned it, scientists went out and had a look and found that this antibiotic sludge was in fact toxic to most marine invertebrates. We talk a lot about the Mayan Trench because it's an easy one to just sort of get your head around and it's the deepest place. So in keeping with that thread, there has been more and more and more papers published in the last five years about pollution in the Mariana Trench. Now, this is not a, a dig at the Mariana or any of the nations around the Mariana. I think it just gets scrutinised more so because it's the deepest place in the world. It has that prestigious... There's traffic. Yeah. It's I think it, if you want to make a point, you do it at the deepest place. I mean, to, to tell people the third deepest place in the world has got something in it it shouldn't do is, is not that impactful. So it does get disproportionately scrutinised. But, you know, in the last four or four years, maybe there's been papers written about high concentrations of lead in the... In the trench fish. There is the presence of the 1950s hydrogen bomb radiation and crustaceans at the bottom. There's been bioaccumulation of persistent organic pollutants. With that, is there, there are plasticizers, PCBs. There are flame retardants, PBDEs. More recently, there's a paper came out about the pesticides, DDTs. They're all present in the, the deepest fauna. There is ingestion of microplastic and synthetic fibers. There's a paper describing lots of plastic litter on the seafloor. There's plastic contamination of sediments. It goes on and on and on. I mean, one of the, the weird things that came out of our expedition last year and the year before was the amount of fibre optic plastic coated umbilical cables that are strewn all across the Challenger Deep. Now, this is something that we don't see in other trenches. This is very specific. There's, there's so many people trying to crack this deepest place in the world. And unfortunately, some nations are taking to using a, a method which is really quite horrid in that they're, they're using a fiber optic cable to have real-time video communications to the surface. But at the end of that dive, they cut it. So it's like leaving fishing line trip wires, booby traps all over the bottom of the sea. And you know we've, we've come across it. We've, we've got a glimpse of it in 2019. There was some yellow stuff and there was some white stuff. And you know at one point, the lander even landed on a, on a piece of this and, and then dives it did in 2020 it was clear that especially in the western side that it's, it's really really bad and it's a practice that we've we've submitted a, an article to try and get that practice banned because it's it's really awful it's like trip wiring up the top of mount everest and, and unfortunately where our good friend don walsh dove in 1960 that's essentially now a no-go zone because you can't really go there now with an exploratory vehicle because the tangle hazards left over it's too dangerous so is this a site you've been to before and it's relatively new or have you just not been to this spot before and this might have been 
been there for a while. We've got reason to believe it's probably in the last year or so. Which means so you've got a deliberate dumping of plastic and basically laying down tangle hazards. So once that particular group has done their dive, no one else can follow in their footsteps because they've left this big trail of, of fibre optic behind. And it's a bit sad that the exploration vehicles are not only stopping others coming in to look at the extent of the plastic problem, they're also adding to it which I think is really awful. But it is what it is, and it seems to be quite limited to Mariana Trench, and that suggests that it is because there's this sort of race on to try and get vehicles down there without necessarily caring about the impact that it has. So. There's also something else in the news last month was a paper came out about mercury contamination in the Mariana Trench, and I was involved in this to some degree. Uh, there was actually two very similar papers. One came out of China, and then there was there was our one came out, which was, I won't take any credit for it, I just did the field work, but it's really the work of... Uh, Joe Bloom and, and Jeff Raisin in, in the States. But what they were finding is that, I don't know if anyone's familiar with mercury, but mercury is a globally distributed neurotoxic pollutant. But it can be biomagnified in fish to levels that are actually harmful for human consumption. So it's something that we're very aware about in fisheries, and perhaps not so appreciative of, of how it then percolates down to the deep sea. But, you know, everything in the sea eventually sinks. The only way is down. And what they found in the study was the mercury isotope measurements of animals from the deepest trenches was basically full of surface ocean derived mercury and it had indeed infiltrated all the way down and that's really really sad so it's just another one i mean if you add that to the pcbs the pbdes the ddts it just it seems to be if you go looking for something you'll find it and you'll find it in the deepest place uh, which is really quite sad but and that causes us issues because we don't have a baseline when we're yeah, comparing I've, places we we need somewhere clean to compare them to and nowhere is clean anymore i think the take-home message from all of this stuff is certainly some of those studies were came out of, of our lab a lot of the questions we've got were what does it mean what does it do? And it's like, well, we, we don't actually know because we're only studying these species for the first time and they're already contaminated. Therefore, the window in which to get some sort of pristine baseline data is now shut. So we'll never know. I mean, if, if these things are, for example, reducing reproductive success, we probably won't know because we won't know what the reproductive success was or what it's supposed to be. Yeah. And that's the most frightening thing. So yeah, the deepest point in the Mediterranean is Calypso Deep. Couldn't really figure out why it's called Calypso Deep. Just figured it was because Jacques Cousteau used to work in the Oceanographic Museum in Monaco and his submersible was called Calypso, but there was actually a HMS Calypso that did a lot of work, so I'm not sure what that relationship is. It's, it must come from one of the two of them. It's the deepest point in the Med. It's just uh, west of Greece, west of Peloponnese. 5,100 metres. And there were some interesting projects because it's so close to land to look at actually putting cabled observatories down there. And I think there is some test sites around there as well, isn't there? Yeah. My experience of Calypso Deep is there. I was there in 2006 and did a bioluminescence profile from the surface to over 5,000 metres. So I've done the water column. You did the bottom with a lander, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I think we were the first pictures, was it, of over 5,000 metres at the deepest point in the mid? Possibly, yeah. That paper's open access, so I'll, I'll stick it in the show notes if anyone wants to read. But the weird thing was there was only two species present at the very bottom. It was a, a shrimp and macrurid, a rat tail. But they both seem to be stunted to this same sort of size. They both seem to be about 10 centimetres long. The food supply is incredibly low down there, so we were wondering if there's like a, an energy optimum for them down there. There's weird stuff going on in the med. I reckon it's it's one of the most awesome seas because of its interesting history and how it's still interesting today. It's a fairly new sea. It wasn't there for a while. It actually completely dried out six million years ago in the Messian salinity crisis. So completely dried out. They reckon a few little pools may have survived. So we might have some endemic species surviving, but basically it had a hard reset 
six million years ago when it pretty much completely dried out. It eventually reconnected with the Atlantic about 5.3 million years ago in the Sanclean Flood or the Sanclean Deluge. This is just incredibly awesome. The water is dropping, well, more than a kilometer, 100 million meters squared per second is flowing into this. And over a couple of years, the whole sea filled through this one entrance in the Atlantic. So that just must have been incredible. Like if you could stand on the shores and watch that happening, it must have been amazing. Some geologists think it was slightly less spectacular and it maybe happened over a longer time. But I, I'm team one kilometer enormous waterfall. Sounds a bit more awesome. And that was flowing in through the Strait of Gibraltar. Again, adds some strangeness to the, um, to the med. So that's a narrow channel. It's deepest at about 280 meters deep. And so that means that the deep sea species that colonize the med have to, at some point in their life, cope with being that shallow, like either as a larval stage or a juvenile stage or floating eggs or something like that. And so that means that the deep sea fauna that have seeded the med are sort of restricted by that. And you don't get the usual deep sea sort of classics. You don't get your deep sea anglerfish, for instance, and there's a lot of crustaceans missing as well. So you end up with a slightly unusual deep sea community there. It also ends up being really warm. So usually abyssal water depth is two to four degrees centigrade. So it's actually quite cold. But in the med, it's 13 to 14 degrees, like right the way down. There's not a, there's not a thermocline. So it's warm water all the way down. And that makes it a little bit easier for shallow species to go a little bit deeper. So not only do you see a subset of the deep sea fauna from the Atlantic getting into the med, you also see shallow species going a lot deeper because pressure and temperature are kind of all intertwined together. So you, you see the, the reverse in, say, the Norwegian fjords, where really cold water means that deep sea species come a little bit shallower. Interestingly, they start to evolve as well. So you end up with deep water variants of classically shallow water species. I'm really interested in these sort of warm, deep waters just because they almost act like an experiment to show us the limits of life and what is restricting animals getting where. That high temperature really accelerates metabolism and that includes like microbial metabolism as well. So the food that's usually feeding the deep sea, things that are produced on the surface through, you know, whole animals dying and sinking down or through uh, phytoplankton, that gets broken down by bacteria much, much faster. And so actually at the very deepest point when we first got those images, it looks like a, a really good plaster job. It's perfectly, perfectly smooth and clean. And it's hard to imagine where these animals are finding any food down there because it, it looks polished. It's really strange. What we need to do to try and tie together the Mediterranean and the plastics and the deepest point in the Mediterranean, we need to find someone who's been there. Yeah, someone who's seen it firsthand. Yeah. On this episode of the Deep Sea Podcast, we have the honour of welcoming our next guest, who is an important advocate of environmentalism and ocean conservation. And among many other global initiatives, uh, we've had the pleasure of hosting here in Newcastle two years ago when he received a, an honorary lifetime membership to the Challenger Society. Joining us from Monaco, please welcome His Serene Highness Prince Albert II of Monaco. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure. Earlier this year, you recently you dove to over 5,000 metres in the Mediterranean Sea in, in the limiting factor submarine. Yeah. To the deepest point, no less. And you saw firsthand the current state of the seafloor. Could you tell us a bit about your experience of being in the sub generally and exactly what it was that you, you saw on the seafloor? It, it was an incredible experience. And uh, to be in the DSV limiting factor, which is a, an incredible craft and uh, not uh, by, by the excess of, of space that we have in, in the capsule, but, <laughs> but it's a it's an incredibly efficient vessel and, and uh, felt very safe at this vessel. And, and, and we were able to, to have a very smooth descent and, and then uh, ascent back up to the surface. But to, to be there with with Victor Vescovo and, and of course with the whole team that 
was a, was a just a great experience, and and just seeing the the well the complexity of putting on such an operation, and also knowing that uh, you you are diving in the, the deepest part of the Mediterranean, which of course is a sea that's very close to my heart, close to everybody here in Monaco living on its shores. But to see what we could through the little portholes gives one a very good impression of what what oceans and seas are all about mm -hmm. the difficulties and the fragility of, of these ecosystems but of course what was the most striking is that well we saw very very little life outside but a few uh, deep water shrimps but quite a lot of plastic yeah and that was the the, the most frightening and and surprising thing is that right on the on the floor of the Mediterranean at, at over 5,000 meters, well, there's large quantities of pieces of plastic. And so that uh, only goes to show that if need be, we, we, we all, I think, knew about this, but the extraordinary amount of plastic litter that is in our seas and our oceans. And, and we absolutely have to try to curb this ever-increasing volume of plastic waste that we dump into our oceans every year yeah i mean i've, I've i watched the videos back and uh from mm. from your dive and it is i would say out of everywhere we've been that was by by orders of magnitude the worst in terms of just really? just the, the ratio between litter and life it was it was virtually nothing was, i don't recall actually seeing any any animals on the seafloor at all during the whole dive it was just all litter of of every type you can think of so but, i mean recently you founded the beyond plastic med initiative so for the benefit of the audiences. Can you explain what that is and how you can get people involved? Plastic pollution is obviously one of the most serious ecological problems that we are facing affecting our, our oceans. And this was especially true in the Mediterranean. And it's especially true because it is a semi-enclosed sea. And it's now unfortunately considered, as, as you just said, you know, one of the most polluted seas in the world. So in order to, to meet that this challenge of trying to find the best solutions uh, for plastic in the Mediterranean, my foundation partnered with the Tara Ocean Foundation, Surfrider Europe, and the, and the MAVA Foundation in privileged partnership with IUCN to create this initiative called Beyond Plastic Med or BMED five years ago. Mm -hmm. So each year, BMED supports initiatives that aim to reduce plastic pollution at its source. So for the last five years, we've been involved in 57 different projects in 15 countries that are around the Mediterranean. And so beyond the financial support, BMED creates a, a regional dynamic by facilitating the sharing of experience and knowledge within this network. And to reinforce its impact, BMED also works with the private sector and uh, earlier this year, a business club for companies operating around the Mediterranean was created. The discussion space, supervised by a small committee of experts, supported companies to implement different solutions and, of course, sustainable solutions. So until beginning of next January, BMED fifth call for micro-initiatives is open. So the call is aimed to support projects to find alternatives to plastics, to mobilize the different stakeholders, to collect data, and to advise and help and implement uh, new regulations that raise awareness and to improve the actions of uh, waste collection. So everybody has a role to play in, in this BMED initiative on the political front to try to implement new regulations to make this effort a more globalized effort, if you like, to really get NGOs involved to, to disseminate best practices and, and mobilize the different stakeholders. The industrial sector also 
need to be involved to reduce the use of plastics and to reduce plastic production. And of course, the scientific community and scientists and engineers to, to develop new materials to improve plastic waste management. Then last point is, is, is the public at large, that we all should reduce our use of plastics in everyday life. I think you make an important point there about thinking sort of environmentally about the Mediterranean. And this is not necessarily a, an effect of the countries around the Mediterranean being particularly wasteful or, or reckless. I think that you have to appreciate that the Mediterranean is a very, very deep basin, which is there's no potential for dispersal because it's, it's mm -hmm. so locked together that anything that goes in the Mediterranean stays in the Mediterranean. And when you get down to the deepest point, which is Calypso Deep, it's, there's yeah. nowhere else for it to go. So it's quite unique in that if it were to go off the the coast of Portugal, for example, literally would ultimately spread across the Atlantic and perhaps it wouldn't feel so so bad. But the Mediterranean is, is it, there's nowhere for it to go. And that's that's a really sad state of affairs for the, the species that, that, that live there. <laughs> you know, it's mm -hmm. essentially this ultimate sink for it. Going back to this with your B-Med hat on and your mm -hmm. opportunity to dive in the sub, do you think that actually being on the bottom, do you feel that being there in person gave you a sort of new perspective or, or some new sort of inspiration to do something? Because I know it's, it's one thing seeing pictures and magazines of litter on the seafloor or videos on yeah. TV, but to actually sort of see it with your own eyes, do you think that's made an impact on you? No, no, of course. I have been privileged to travel to many places around the world and many different beautiful places and on different oceans and to do some dives, not not dives in, in, a, in a capsule like that, but to uh, uh, some bottle diving, but to go deeper below the surface, but to actually go to the very bottom of one of the seas and the Mediterranean in particular, and, and to see the extent of plastic uh, litter and, and, and the impact that this plastic has on the different depths of our oceans is, is of course, a wake-up call. And I was expecting to see something along along the way, but not, not so many different pieces of plastic on the ocean floor. Yeah. That should be a wake-up call, not only for me, but for anybody. I think especially when you've got the visual imagery of, of what people expect to see when they're stood on the coast of the Mediterranean. You know, it's this hot, beautiful yeah. beaches, holiday resorts, and, and then suddenly you realise, you know, because I've, I've done a few ROV projects in the Mediterranean as well, and it's, mm -hmm. it's, it is staggering. We, we've seen corals with, we've been wrapped in rope and, you know, yeah. drinks cans and amongst coral reefs and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's tragic. And I think maybe people who are lying on the sun liners on the beaches of the, you know, the Mediterranean probably don't really have an appreciation for just how bad the Mediterranean is becoming and how quickly it's becoming really bad. No, it's true. And that's why it's so important. And it's more important than ever now, having seen this, that I try to do my part into into trying to mobilize people around these this issue that's that's so important for our well-being. If there are healthy ecosystems and, and a healthy global ocean, then we will of course benefit from that. We have to be made aware of this and we have to let the public at large know about this and they can play a role as well. So the, the plastic problem, I think, is, is ultimately extraordinarily important, but you can get very depressed thinking about it because <laughs> it's so, it's, I think even just last week, there was a news report I read about the plastic pollution at the very summit of Mount Everest, which, to be honest, is not too surprising, but it's just sad to see yeah. it in black and white that, you know, you're now looking at every corner of the planet. So to try and lighten the mood a little bit, we spoke to Don Walsh quite a lot, and Don's been telling oh, us yeah. about some of the other guys that were involved in Trieste that perhaps you've never normally heard of. 
And over the course of my career, certainly, your great-grandfather has come up time and time and time again through species that have been named after some of his vessels, through things like he pioneered a deep-baited trap. He, he did this huge haul of what we call parasitic eels and, and stuff like that. So I just wanted to take the opportunity to ask you about his Serene Highness Prince Albert I. You know, he's clearly a legend in the deep-sea world, and it was obviously yeah. 100 years ago. I was wondering if you could just tell us what he was like. I know he was called the Navigator Prince and you hear about all these amazing expeditions that he did, but what motivated him? What what, what kind of person was he? Well, I, I'm sorry that uh, neither my father or, or myself got to know him personally because he passed away uh, well before my time and, and just before my father's time. But but just reading his journal and reading his book and reading his different letters that he wrote, different speeches or presentations that he made to fellow adventurers or scientists, an incredible curious mind and, and in the good sense of the term, you know, to, he was really wanting to know everything about oceanography of course, but also other sciences. But uh, really, his his love for the sea and his sense of adventure, but also his great vision of what uh, needed to be done, even in, in his day. He was a pioneer, of course, and, and he was very much at the forefront, as you know, of, of greater dissemination of the, the, the then new science of oceanography at the time through his connections with different scientists around the world and through the, some 28 different expeditions that he organized and that he funded and that he helped set up. Well, in several different letters and, and, and speeches that he wrote in the very early part of the 20th century, I think it was 1903, he was talking about issues concerning overfishing in, in certain parts of the Atlantic. No one, of course, ever talked about that yeah. at, at that time. And uh, some people still have problems with that now. But it took a long time for many of us to realize that oceans were overfished or that this could be a problem down the road. But he, he saw that back then. And so um, it, his legacy is tremendous. And I think it's always incredible to think that, that uh, even if he died almost 100 years ago, that his legacy still lives on and has still inspired uh, many people around the world and many and many scientists are, yeah. who love the ocean and through the Oceanographic Museum in Monaco and, and its collections and its all, all, all the information that it can disseminate. But through, through his personality as well, that, that then can be perceived through his, through his films and through his, uh, and through his writings. I think one of my favourite stories was, uh, which is a moment of incredible simplicity, but at the time must have been visionary, was when he went out to the North Atlantic and he wanted to map the Gulf Stream. So apparently over the course of multiple expeditions, they threw over 1,600 wine bottles over the side with a letter in it. They did the yeah. message in the bottle thing, and then there was people in Orkney yeah. and Shetland finding these things like months later and <laughs> opening them up and finding a letter from Prince Albert of Monaco inside. <laughs> it must have been really bizarre. And of course, he's asking them to, would you politely write back to me and tell me where you found this? <laughs> and, and there's an amazing map drawn of essentially the North Atlantic circulation from that. Yeah. So uh, I wonder what he would have made of the plastic problem. That would have been an interesting conversation. Uh, yeah, I, I would have loved to have picked his mind about that, but I'm, yeah. I'm sure he, he would be appalled by it and definitely uh, try to mobilize people around this. So what do you think, is what, what's the next big step then in deep sea conservation, particularly in the Mediterranean and in, in your, your backyard? A societal one? Is it a technology one? Is it a problem for scientists to deal with? Is it, a, or, is it or, or is it entirely a political one? I mean, how, how the plastic problem seems now that it's so huge, it's hard to know yeah. who to go to to fix it. Well, you know, I think it obviously is a mixture of all of the above. I think that the technology is available to us 
now is already very substantial and, and that we can draw from that to help us. And so do the scientific skills to, to operate the, these technologies. First of all, identify the problem and then, and then try to find substitutes for it plastic. But I think what is lacking also is financial resources uh, so that scientists can can work in good conditions. Of course, there's also the political will to take the brave measures at the multilateral level to better preserve different parts of the global ocean, the different, different actions at different levels. They all have to converge to make all these uh, things possible to better protect our seas and, and the ocean floor. It's great that you've got things like Beyond Plastic Med Initiative and stuff like that. So it's great to know that there are big voices, at least in the Mediterranean, trying to do something about that. And I think that's probably mm-hmm. the take-home message is what's happened is bad, but there are good things taking place yeah. to try and undo it all. So with that, I would just want to thank you, Serene Highness, for your, your time this afternoon. Thank you. I wish you all the best and I encourage all our listeners to go out and check out the Beyond Plastic Med initiative as well and see if there's anything they can do to, to join in and help. Absolutely. And that was a pressurized version of one of our full-length episodes. If you enjoyed that and you would like to hear the full-length episode, just match the episode numbers in the feed. Thanks for listening. We'll deep see you next time and I hope you see you already. Oh,